when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Hey listeners, and welcome to the penultimate episode of this edition of Book to Movie Month. For our last main episode, we are looking at the S.E. Hinton adapted story, The Outsiders, directed by Francis Ford Coppola and starring a who's who of then rising movie stars. With me tonight is a rising star himself, recently joining the Seattle Film Critics Society, my best friend Aaron. Hey man, congratulations. Well, hello, and thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, It's been a pretty cool thing for this last week and a half or so since the SFCS has gone public or become a finalized actual entity. It's been in the work by Mike Ward, who is the president of that. Uh, he was recently on our Lego Ninjago review with me, and he's he's really he, along with several other, of course, uh, local critics, really have worked for this for a year plus to get it to where it is now, to where we're we're starting off this inaugural year, and it is it's an honor to be a part of that and be kind of one of those initial twenty five that are on the ground ground level of this group and and hoping to make it something really unique and special and i'm i'm super excited for it well i'm super excited for you too i know it's just kind of blowing your mind right now to kind of have this fast track in the last what eight months you've become a a a certified critic getting to go to all these screenings and throwing stuff on the website and um, all that great stuff and then now being part of just pioneering this brand new thing i'm i'm really proud of you man well, thank you. That means a lot to me. And, you know, since you mentioned throwing things on the website, I'm going to use that as a segue to just touch on a couple quick things before we get into the episode that I wanted to kind of mention during our is, what we've is, been up to. The segue, a literary word? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, okay. Just making sure. <laughs> <laughs> Inside joke. Okay. Um, so what I wanted to say is when it comes to throwing stuff on the website, what we are doing We're going to make a little shift, and we are no strangers to changing up format, trying new things. It's something where we never want to limit ourselves and keep ourselves from from doing that because we like to expand and grow and and see what works and what doesn't. And one of those new things is I'm going to be writing more actual reviews. So feelandfilm.com will be housing my reviews of movies that I see in theater movies that I'm seeing each and every week. Uh, that's They're being done in a, in a kind of a unique format where before I see the movie, I'm writing up a little, little paragraph on what my expectations are and what I know about the film. And then I'm coming out of the movie and giving, you know, that real real time reaction as far as, you know, how I felt about it and were the expectations met. My goal is that through reading what my expectations were and my reactions, that a reader can kind of self-determine whether or not they match up with that. And so they'll better be able to know whether they are going to like a movie or not. Because if they're not going into the movie with the same expectations as I am, perhaps the rest of my review really doesn't matter for them. Because they may already be predisposed to enjoy something that I'm predisposed not to. Is that, is that the right word, predisposed? Um, yeah, I think so. Okay, hope so. If not, I'm failing on our book to movie month 
with words and that's not good. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so short story is that you're going to get more written reviews from me. You can get those on our Facebook page. They'll be posted there. They'll be on the website, feelingfilm.com. There's a tab under read that says movie reviews and it has my movie reviews and also Steve Clifton, our contributors movie reviews as well. And they'll be posted on Twitter and, my, and such as well. So if you're following us, any of those places, you'll have access to those. Fantastic, man. So are these going to be, these will be brand new movies, right? That came out nothing, nothing in the, in the past, uh, at least maybe the past year and like that, right? No. Um, my intention is not to go backward, namely because with the format that I've chosen, it's really all about going in with, I, I have to write about the movie before I see it. And so the, the less I know kind of makes more sense than something that I may have you know, heard about for the last 20 years. Yeah. And it just, it just doesn't work as well. And I, and I think I just like to focus on newer films because really what we're trying to do is use, use the press credentials for good, (laughs) I guess is, is the way I'd say it. You know, I have access, this incredible access I'm blessed to have to see movies before everybody else. And so I want to use that to give my opinion and let our listeners and our readers know what I thought. And so hopefully they can make good purchasing decisions for themselves on the weekends. Those movies come out. Cool, man. Well, I noticed that on social media you had uh, let us know that you were watching the latest Transformers movie, and I know you may have had some expectations going in. So did did you finish the movie? I, I saw a couple of comments that <laughs> indicated that you may not have finished it, but I wanted to see if that was a... Uh, if that was something that you actually got to complete. Fantastic question. Um, I do post quite often on social media. So if you're not following me, you can get my tags at the end of this episode and would love to have you do that and engage. I I was talking about Transformers because I wanted something to watch late last night and it was a little bit late. Well, it was not, it was not a little bit late. It was a lot late last night. And I knew that I needed something that would keep me awake. Couldn't be like a slow, slow burn drama. And I was like, well, I need to see this newest Transformers movie. I never got around to it. And I really want to watch the films that I skipped due to reviews. So I threw it on thinking, you know, I've enjoyed all of the movies in this series so far, even the Dino one to some extent. And it can't be that bad, Patrick. It just, it can't, cannot be that bad. It's worse than that bad, Patrick. It is by far the worst movie of this year that I have seen, which is pretty spectacular because there's a couple others that I thought were in contention, but it just blew right past them. The odd thing is that nothing works in this movie for me. Nothing. Like there's not, you know, normally there's something that I enjoy. For example, I watched the book of Henry just today. There's plenty of things that are wrong with that film. And I can understand the negative reaction that it got when it came out because of what was going on. But there are things that are redeemable in that movie too. It's a one and a half or two star movie, right? There's a couple things worth seeing it for or interesting. Not the case with Transformers the last night. Editing is all over the place. Stories, there's like 15 of them, and I have no idea why or what is going on. Or I, it is, I, it's bonkers. It is, it is so bonkers. Dialogue, terrible. Transformer design, ridiculous. There's even a there's a scene from like Suicide Squad, you know, where they introduce all the characters and they like throw their names up on the screen and and take a snapshot for a second. There's a scene where Megatron's introducing the Decepticons. <laughs> <laughs> and it is just the stupidest thing I've ever seen. 
Um, they right off the bat, they they introduce us to new characters and they give us this emotional music and these emotional things that are happening and they expect us to care. And I'm like, hey, she's been on screen for two minutes. I don't care what happens to her. I don't even know her. I don't know her name yet. You know, it's it is horrendous and it is 100% obvious that they have mailed it in. I don't think that they're even trying anymore. They know people are going to pay to see it. They don't really care. I feel, and when I say they don't care, what I mean is I really feel that they are not taking the time and putting the resources into trying to develop a strong story. They're just trying to be fast. And it's all based around, hey, what kind of cool action sequence can we set up and come come with next? And... Mm that'll make them happy. And and so there's like one or two scenes that I got to see that are mildly interesting, I guess, visually, but mostly it was just like Michael Bay on steroids, Patrick, you need to stay away from this because you might, (laughs) you might actually try to go burn down his house. If you watch this, I, I, this is, it's awful. It is awful. And I, if you listen to me often on the podcast, if you read me on social media, you will know that this is not my personality. I do not bash movies. This one dumpster fire, put it in the trash, don't watch it. Ugh. <laughs> well, and there you have it. The next <laughs> review from Aaron White. <laughs> well, I'm glad we did Pacific Rim in lieu of this one this summer. I, I was not looking forward to it. I I jumped off the boat after the, the I guess the third one officially, but and um I'm not gonna be that guy that says Michael Bay's ruining my childhood or anything, but if you're gonna create a story around robots, you gotta create a pretty good one. And um so yeah, I'm I'm glad I avoided this one. So thanks for the reassurance there. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, what about you? Have you been up to anything this last week? Well, in in light of this week's episode, The Outsiders, I wanted to actually visit Francis Ford Coppola's other S.E. Hinton adapted novel. I'd heard about this movie and book for a number of years, being a fan of both the book and movie of, of The Outsiders. And it's a movie called Rumblefish. This was a movie whose screenplay he was working on in tandem with The Outsiders. And I read a little bit about it beforehand, but didn't really have much of a much of a knowledge about it before going in. And after finishing it, I had just really one question, and it was, what did I just watch? Because this is not nothing stylistically narratively or or otherwise anything like the outsiders okay so when we start talking about the outsiders just know that rumblefish is nothing like it okay (laughs) that being said so it's not a sequel to the rumble because that's where my mind first went was is this a sequel to the rumble and matt dillon comes back to life and plays no (laughs) because i mean that seems like a logical conclusion yeah, and nobody's doing it for Johnny in this one, okay? <laughs> just just letting you know. It's it's not like that at all. But after watching it and after doing a little bit of research on the film and sort of the background about why Coppola was really dead set on on doing this, I I began to appreciate it a little bit more. And just like just like The Outsiders, it's got just an ensemble of who's who when it comes to the cast. I mean, Matt Dillon, of course, is in it. Uh, Diane Lane, these guys from The Outsiders. But it's got Mickey Rourke, a young Mickey Rourke's in it. Dennis Hopper, 
Nick Cage, Chris Penn, what? Lawrence Fishburne, Tom Waits. I mean, I, these are I have Oh, he was in the first one. I have to see this. Tom Waits? I think so. I don't remember him being You keep in talking, Gaspar, I'll look but, it up. Okay. But in any case, what it what it is, it's about this guy named Rusty James whose name is said no less than 30 times in the actual movie, and we're talking about an hour and a half. So that's quite a lot of things. He's the younger brother of Mickey Rourke's character, who's known as the motorcycle boy, and he has uh, Rourke's character has gone away for a little bit, and so the movie opens up with Rusty James, who has sort of established himself as this gang member, and he gets into a big rumble or a big fight at the beginning of the film, uh, which ends with the motorcycle boy coming back, and the whole movie is really about Rusty James and his relationship with his brother, and how his brother is looking at life as part of being a gang and being kind of the big shot in a different way. He's been to California and he's kind of perceived as kind of crazy at this point, kind of out of it. And so it's, it's an exploration of their characters and how they relate to each other and how Rusty James as the younger brother wants to be like his older brother and his older brother is saying, no, what I am and who I was and who I am now you don't want this life. You don't want to be this kind of uh, big shot because there's no real hope in that. There's no real value in it. And it's it's filmed in black and white with the exception of a few key parts. It it takes its inspiration visually from like French noir, which I think I guess was a big inspiration for in German film, German noir, uh, which was a big inspiration for Coppola. The story itself Coppola apparently resonated with it on a personal level, which is why he wanted to do it. He called it the carrot uh, that finishing the Outsiders was for you know if the Outsiders was the was the stick, then that was the carrot it was was Rumblefish. And it's I, I would recommend it if you're kind of into those weird noir movies because I think it's more of an experimental film. It's not the narrative is not really that great in terms of being kind of I mean it's sequential, but it doesn't flow like you're typical you know decent movie the cast is great but the dialogue wasn't quite as stellar as i would have liked and so if i were to recommend this film it would be for people who are into that film film noir style that black and white kind of edgy experimental type way but the narrative itself was it was okay um, I, I would just say it's an experience more than anything else. I can't really say it's great or good. I would say that it's worth checking out if you're into those kind of experimental off color, literally, <laughs> films. And it's one that I think forces you to think more about the characters beyond just what the the story is telling you. So I would give it kind of a half thumbs up for a recommendation. I don't know if I could do that. That's like a nub at this point. But it's on Amazon if you guys want to check it out. And uh, yeah, so it's Francis Ford Coppola's other S.E. Hinton adaptation, Rumblefish. Awesome. Sequel to Rumble. Got it. I will check that out. Sequel to Rumble. (laughs) (laughs) Kidding, kidding, kidding. Well, Patrick, thanks to our generous patrons, we are here today. And I just want to make sure we acknowledge that. Very quickly, um, they are the ones who help us keep the show going, and they participate in our monthly voting for our donor pick episodes, which recently was chosen, and 
they have decided that we are going to be covering Watchmen later this week, and mm-hmm. I'm super excited about that. So, listeners, if you want to chip in a dollar, check out the rewards page at patreon.com slash film. You can see what's available and get in on the action if you so choose. We'd love to have your support as well. With that being said, I think it's time to get into the movie. And, Patrick, we are going to spoil this film, first of all. This is from the early 80s, so no excuses. You can go find this movie. And, I mean, who wouldn't have already seen this film? It's, it's like, almost 30 years old, <clears throat> uh, Aaron. So, <laughs> you chose this. I had I never even... I, I knew nothing about it uh, at all. And so, I'm going to let you do the introductions. Well, this is the... This is a movie whose book and movie I was introduced to in junior high. I would think in my small world of social relationships that the people that know this movie were introduced to it in the same way. We read the book in junior high. We followed it up with the the hour and a half theatrical cut. And I say that because there was several years later, there was a complete uh, a version of it a director's cut called the complete novel that came out which in my opinion adds a lot narratively but takes away from because of some of the musical elements that it throws in there so for this podcast i think i recommended that we just looked at the theatrical cut so anybody that's seen the complete novel you can talk to me about it on social media and we can hash out why it was great or, or not but this was a movie that i was introduced to in junior high like i said and I actually hadn't seen it in several years. I'd seen it since junior high, uh, especially when I, when I bought it. I, I watched it, obviously. But this is a movie that I recall this time around feeling very much like it flows like a novel, which can be a positive or a negative thing. Because when we think of book-to-movie adaptations, especially ones that we've covered in the last few weeks – and others that have come along the pipe, particularly in the in the young adult, uh, the young adult phase of of movie adaptations, we don't ever really think about we we there is the thinking about oh the the book was better because it included this or the movie wasn't as good because it didn't have these things. We we can make those comparisons, but when I make a statement like this feels like it flows like a novel, really it stems from the the writing more than anything else. It just, it feels like I'm turning pages every time I re, you know, I'm, I'm watching a scene with these characters. I feel like I'm just, okay, chapter two. Okay. Chapter three. Okay. Chapter four. And I can't decide if I like that or not. I'm, I'm going to say from a nostalgic point of view that I, it was forgiving, but watching it now, I didn't really think I cared for it that much because of the fact that it felt very stagnant. It didn't feel it. It really just felt like a transposed uh, page for page lines of dialogue. That's not to say that the story wasn't good. It just felt very different from other things from silver linings playbook or the perks of being a wallflower where you incorporated music, you incorporated different. um, I don't know how to describe it. Different. Uh, other elements that maybe it had to do with the fact that those were more recent films that incorporated a lot more technologies, maybe some more up-to-date directors. Maybe it was because Coppola wasn't really keen on doing a movie like this until he was kind of 
just shouted from the rafters from students saying, hey, you should do this movie. It also could have to do with the fact that its author, S.E. Hinton, actually wrote this when she was a teenager. So there are a lot of factors that go into that. And so while I didn't necessarily love it, I still enjoyed it quite a bit. But this is this viewing really amplified that, man, this feels like I'm reading a book, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, I, I felt the exact same way. And I, I don't know that I even knew how to articulate it. So it's great to hear you explain it that way because for me, that puts it into focus. And that that is exactly the experience that I had. It didn't seem to feel like a flow, fluent movie in the way that I'm used to. Mm-hmm. Um, you describe, you know, just blocks of dialogue moving from section to section. And that's that's largely what we got aside from maybe once or twice where there is an attempt to interject some sort of song or score into the film and it feels mm-hmm. and sounds awful to me. Like it's one of my, my, my strongest criticisms of the film and mm-hmm. it's not one that derailed my experience. I'll say that, uh, but it did affect it in a, in a less than positive way. I didn't think that the music did this movie any favors at all it just didn't there were several scenes where it just did not fit and didn't feel right but right um but overall so i again i knew nothing about this movie going in i must not have read it in high school if i did it was entirely forgettable and maybe i cliff noted it and just did a you know maybe i downloaded somebody else's paper and turned it in or something i don't know probably (laughs) very possible (laughs) but um (laughs) yeah i didn't i didn't remember anything about it patrick and so I, I intentionally, when you put it on the schedule, decided I was going to stay clear and I wasn't going to do any kind of reading up. I was just going to go into this one extremely fresh mm-hmm. and blind. And I did. And the cast blew me away. I had no clue that this is what I was going to get. So when they start showing up, it was just about the first 20 minutes was just me kind of geeking out constantly going, Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And Oh my gosh, they're going to Patrick Swayze's house. Like, and why is Tom Cruise there? And like, I mean, I, I was losing my ever loving mind, yeah. you know, placing all of the actors. Unfortunately <laughs> over time, and this is not the movie's fault, of course, but what I think for me happened is I started to, see them all as different roles. And Mm. I I was imagining, you know, Emilio Estevez, this character uh, is two bit, I believe is his name in the film. Mm -hmm. And I I kept the the way in which he was acting was so similar to his Billy, the kid in young guns that I kept (laughs) imagining him as that character. Um, See Thomas Hal is a classic eighties, like star and, and doesn't have the most famous name, but my goodness, he was in everything from the eighties that you can imagine kind of like the Corys. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so, you know, him, it was hard for me. It took me about half the film before I stopped thinking that Ralph Macchio was going to crane kick someone, mm-hmm. um, as Johnny. And, and eventually I got there. Um, Tom Cruise, shocking, not really even in this movie, but like maybe five minutes. <laughs> I mm-hmm. mean, he's, he's got almost no, no dialogue. Matt Dillon, uh, seeing him on screen made me want to rewatch wild things. It was a really weird experience for me. I just kept kind of uh, movie hopping for a while, but once it fell into its groove for me, I did really enjoy it. Um, and I'm glad I watched it because 
I think that although the story is somewhat of a plot that we're used to, we're familiar with, this is Romeo and Juliet, this is West Side Story, these are these are not new themes of two gangs who are rivals coming together and fighting over something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love the way it was explored and mm-hmm. the there was there was more I think to the relationships within the characters. So the pony boy and Johnny relationship specifically that Mm -hmm. elevated this film and made it kind of special and unique for me. And it was really cool to finally, I can now say that I understand what it means when people say, stay gold, pony boy, stay gold. I, I always never knew what that meant. And I would just kind of nod and and act like, yep, mm -hmm, I'm with you, but I had no clue. Now I know. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you are now well-informed and in the know, and now you can be one of the cool kids. The um, the cast is phenomenal, as you as you mentioned, and the the fact that they're young these are, I mean, not just young as their ages, but young in their careers. A lot of these guys were going to become breakout stars. I don't know. And this movie released in '83. I don't believe anybody, but possibly Matt Dillon and Patrick Swayze, Patrick Swayze were big names at that time. I don't think Cruz or Estevez or uh, Machi, you know, any of those guys had made a name for themselves. And so, yeah, it makes perfect sense that when you're watching it in 2017, you're going, look at that, the karate kids hanging out with one of the trash guys. And, oh, yeah, I'm wondering if Ethan Hunt's going to do anything crazy here. Oh, I'll bet you, you know, I'll bet you we're going to get some dirty dancing here in a little bit. So that stuff went through my mind as well watching this and and it's always going to because I'm always going to equate those actors with their big breakout roles or with you know, some of these guys have tons more than others but the thing that I appreciate about this is the fact that these actors as much as they could carried the dialogue I, I began to fall in love with them as characters particularly with with Pony Boy and Johnny um, the interesting thing between Ralph Macchio and C. Thomas Howell is that obviously in real life, these guys weren't that far uh, apart in age from each other. And the book and the movie subsequently portrayed Johnny as the older of the two. And um, in some of the extended cuts, you see a lot, a couple of more scenes of their kind of brotherly love, and it's really kind of cool. But I think you mentioned that The Outsiders is sort of a We've seen the, you know, we, we know Romeo and Juliet, we know uh, West Side Story. And it's funny because I had this conversation with somebody about that comparison. And I sort of defended it by saying it's part of those. It's part of Romeo and Juliet and it's part of West Side Story. But West Side Story is really an up-to-date musical version of Romeo and Juliet. The Outsiders is not about Pony Boy and Cherry. It's not about their relationship. Yes, it's about rival gangs, but there's something else that comes through in this. Cherry, I think, is a a um, I think she's a kind of a, a not crux, but she's kind of a, a pivot for that. She's kind of a, kind of a starting point. His relationship with her, I think, begins to unpack this theme of understanding who we are and understanding where you are in terms of how you've grown up, who the people you are that you hang out with, are you identified with those types of things. And so that's one of the big themes that we get here is this challenge of stereotypes and social status, both internally and externally. 
So when Pony Boy gets introduced to Cherry, there's this starting gun essentially of a relationship where we start to see Pony Boy is a grease, but he doesn't necessarily want to be identified as that. Or he admits that he is, but you see some kind of regret in him. And Cherry is a socia. And she wants to be known for more than that, even though she kind of can at this point. And so I really love the fact that we get that pivotal moment with them at the drive-in and such kind of a, with some levity there. And we get this starting point of understanding what story SC Hinton is really trying to tell here. It's not just about being from the right or wrong side of the tracks. It's how are you defining what the right and wrong side of the tracks are? And I think she begins to create a little bit of ambiguity with that, with this beginning relationship. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, you know, honestly, I would have liked a little bit more from her in the film. I, I enjoy, I, I respect and, and enjoy the, the fact that they don't overdo her and they don't turn it into a romance. Like I, right. I like the fact that the story is not centered around Johnny and Cherry and that's the Pony Boy reason, and Cherry. Or, I'm sorry, Pony Boy and Cherry and that that's the reason for the fight, yada, 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 et cetera. Mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of is in a way, but not really. Um, if they'd done that, it would have been much more of just kind of a retelling in a different era. And so she's used in a great way because she only comes back once. Is it once? I think it's like once that she comes back yeah. at the end of the movie and has kind of a, a, a nice little line of dialogue. And, you know, there's just it's that's about it. There's nothing that is sustained from that relationship. But yet, like you said, it's kind of a, a marker for him internally in his growth period and how he's going to change and go forward. Um, But I, I really just enjoyed the relationship of, of Johnny and pony boy and to Mm -hmm. an extended way, adding Dally into that mix, because as a character, he's fascinating to me. Um, You know, he, he gives us that greaser who's older and been through it. And Mm -hmm. so they can see in him what they're going to become in a lot of ways if they stay on this path. Mm -hmm. And they both sort of have this duality of of looking up to him, but also not wanting to be that, like you Mm -hmm. mentioned. Uh, But then, you know, I started off the movie, I hated him. And I actually was, I was extremely frustrated with what was happening in the opening scenes with him and kind of forcing himself on Cherry. Some of the things he was saying, I was a little shocked. And (laughs) I was like, man, is this like, why are we putting this character in here? But then sure enough, the moment that they're in trouble, they go to him and he is nothing but a helper. Like he is taking care of them. He is protecting them. He is actually genuinely looking out for them and trying in his mind, trying to do what is best for them uh, to protect their rest of their lives. And, and I just, I immediately became empathetic for him you know mm-hmm. and so i i really resonated with his character and the way in which his character interacts with those two throughout and so i i thought that was great yeah dally is Dally's an interesting character matt Dillon, i think he personifies what the 50s are or that that kind of punk punk kid uh, i've seen him in this i've seen him in a movie called my bodyguard where he plays a thug uh and he just and he you know in in Rumblefish he's the same kind of guy, and he's just the epitome of what I would consider this this gang 
gang leader, tough. And know this, there's a, I'm going to use another quote, literary word here, but S.C. Hinton, in her book, you'll hear the word tough spoken a lot in the movie. Like when Johnny mentions the Mustang, he said that, that car is tough. It's, she actually describes it in the book as being spelled T-U-F-F, which means cool. <laughs> That's So she actually yeah. gives it a – it's a derogatory term for cool. So when you hear it in the movie, when somebody says, man, that's tough, it's not that it's like you know strong or whatever. It's just that it's, it means it's cool. And so you know, Dallas is one of these guys who – he really epitomizes what it means to be tough. But at the same time – and you mentioned this – I think, yes, he has got a big brother protection kind of attitude towards Johnny in particular. Mm, like yep. Johnny feels like his yep. little brother. But only to the extent of his upbringing. Like he assumes that anyone who's not a grease greaser is out to get him and who's, you know, an enemy. In fact, I love I love that opening scene where Pony boy and and Johnny meet up with him and he goes it's early and like what do you want to do he goes nothing legal and they go walking around and they find these kids playing cards in a lot <laughs> I know. and he just he goes I don't like kids I just I don't and then he goes get out of and he's just you kind of get this idea that he's just a bad boy and then he just projects this sense of you're not gonna you're not gonna phase me and I feel like that's such a detriment to him because we see him as the movie goes on that he refuses to be anything but the person that he's become. Like he has no movement of his, there's no possible way that he could deviate from the person that he's become. Like it's almost like he's scared to, and it's, it, it really makes his character interesting. But like you, I felt kind of empathy for him, but in a different way in that, I feel like he was stuck in this place and it led to his demise because his identity, I think eventually led itself to being wrapped up in being Johnny's protector. And when Johnny dies, what did he have to live for at that point? So I, I, I I liked that in terms of how it was portrayed, even though it kind of broke my heart a little bit because you know, you, you don't want people to die, you know, You'd wish that he'd stay gold, but instead he stayed red, I guess, in that case. Anyway, oh that's, gosh, ter- that's terrible. Um, Moving on. <laughs> go, go ahead. So Sorry. speaking of staying red, uh, <laughs> um, I, you know, one of my, my favorite scenes in the movie is the murder scene. And I, I, from that, I say that from a cinematic standpoint mm-hmm. primarily, but the after effects of it emotionally, I just think it is one of the most brilliantly shot scenes that I'd, I honestly from – I just loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Top, top tier. And this is Francis Ford Coppola. So I shouldn't be totally shocked. You know, this, this is an award-winning director we're talking about here. Um, and it's the, the fact is like with him, with pony boy being, um, drowned, right. Or I guess they're not probably trying to kill him, but they're, you know, pushing his head underwater and you really get that sense of claustrophobia and fear, from that and then all you see is Johnny kind of shaking and and trying to decide what to do and then we're back to that scene with pony boy's head in the water and the way that we know something has occurred is all of a sudden we see red 
into the water and start to mm-hmm. span out. And that's our visual cue of what has taken place. And so it's all done without words that are, it's not, it's not talking to us and telling us, Hey, should I kill him, John? You know, should I kill him pony boy? Like it's, it's all shown to us mm-hmm. and movies don't do enough of that and they don't do it well enough. And this was an example filmmakers should look to of how to do that. And then it's followed by just one of the best emotional beats in the entire movie for me, which is pony boy shaking. He's cold. Johnny's shaking. He's just murdered someone and doesn't know what to think or feel. And it felt to me like that would be the real reaction. If I, if I had to Patrick, if I took a knife to someone to, for what I thought was saving your life, I would not regret it, but I would be scared and lost and confused and I would be shaking and I wouldn't, I feel like that's a, a perfect example of what would, of what a real person would react, how a real person would react. And mm-hmm. the coolest part to me is that after that, Pony Boy says he's going to be sick and Johnny says, it's okay, I won't look. <laughs> and and that that one line told me all I needed to know about the depth of their friendship, almost more than Johnny killing the guy to get him off a of pony boy. That line epitomized it for me because mm-hmm. they he respects and loves him so much that, you know, for them, it was it would be a sign of weakness for pony boy to be watched while he's throwing up because it'd be embarrassing and Johnny's saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to respect you and I'm going to give you that privacy despite everything that's just occurred. And, dis- and it's very selfless, too, because Johnny's just the one that's just just killed a guy. Right. Right. You know, you would think in most movies or most stories, he would be the focal point at that moment. But he's deflecting and and he's concerned about his friend still, even after that. I just I, that scene, man, for me, it was almost my connecting point um, because of how powerful it was. Well, and that echoes later on into the, in the movie where we have them escaping and going to the uh, going to the church. Everything, almost, I mean, almost everything, maybe everything, yeah, is led by by Johnny. You know, Johnny goes to the store. Uh, Johnny gets him gets Pony Boy the book. I mean, everything is about Johnny taking care of Pony Boy, and Johnny's the one that killed him. That's something that didn't I didn't understand until kind of processing it. It's like, wait. Hold on. Johnny's the one that killed somebody. Why is Ponyboy having to bleach his hair? Why is he taking care of Pony? I mean, Ponyboy could have just, you know, he could have just taken off, you know, because he didn't do anything. Maybe he could have been a witness or whatever. But we get more echoes of of how Johnny wants the way in which Dally wants to take care of Johnny. Johnny does the same thing to Ponyboy. And I love the scenes in the church because it just amplifies the kind of friendship that they have the one where they feel like these are the younger kids of the greasers the ones who have been you know they're they're still kind of innocent here and there and the conversations they have they're they're un they're unobtrusive they don't feel fake they feel very genuine and honest and that moment that you mentioned where you know he's where pony boys is going to throw up and giant says i won't look begins begins to show us how their friendship is very vulnerable with each other um there's a scene in the director's cut that's really great and it's between soda pop and pony boy you don't get this in the theatrical cut but there's a really great relationship between between soda and pony boy 
Soda's got a relationship with a girl, and he and he and Ponyboy share a share a bed because you know they're you know they're in a small house. They're you know they don't want to have you know the whoever child protective services or whatever come after him because they're you know it's just three brothers living without parents. But at one point, uh, Soda Pop says, "Hey, are you cold, Ponyboy?" And he goes, "Yeah," and he just leans over and he just embraces him to make him feel warm. And in today's cinema days that could look weird or feel weird or whatever. But then we get this conversation afterwards that expands on how they are together, that pony boy and, and soda pops characters uh, as brothers, they connect differently than his relationship with, with dairy, the pony boy's relationship with dairy, which is incredibly strained. And we see that from the beginning of the movie and we see it kind of come together near the end. But I love the fact that we get to see that, on film, that same relationship with with Johnny and Pony Boy, more fleshed out through the scenes in the church, because I think both those sets of characters, Pony Boy and Johnny and Pony Boy and Soda Pop, are vital to rounding out Pony Boy's character and expanding on who he is as a as a as a person. But I'm glad that if we could only get one, that we got Johnny's relationship with him. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Uh, with you the um other big theme that really resonates still is this idea of the the loss of innocence and it's really wrapped up in that robert frost poem that pony boy and and johnny uh are talking about during that that gone with the wind sunrise you know (laughs) that's just (laughs) which felt very much like that scene but I, I wanted to I wanted to quote something from Spark Notes because that's where I went when I was a kid uh, when I couldn't figure out how to write something. It was Cliff Notes at the time, but now it's Spark Notes. And it says that inciting the poem, Johnny and Pony Boy acknowledge that this loss of innocence is unavoidable, but not that the loss of beauty is inevitable. Before he dies, Johnny urges Pony Boy to quote stay gold and hold on to those ideals that will outlast his loss of youth and innocence. And there's some really beautiful imagery that takes place here. Uh, you know, you have this sunrise that's happening and he, you know, Pony Boy is quoting this Robert Frost poem and he doesn't really understand what it means. And the moment, you know, the moment that I see innocence being lost is that moment when Johnny stabs the Socia. And that conversation that they have sitting up against that fountain, I think that begins to be the the loss of innocence for for both of these characters. And I think that's when the movie really starts to take shape, for me at least, because then knowing that going into it, knowing that theme is going to play out, I think I saw something, significant changes happen over the course of the next hour or so in watching this. Um, did you pick up on that? idea um yeah to some extent i think the cool thing about if you simplify it down to just stay gold pony boy stay gold or just just the simple words of stay gold is that it can be read in in many different ways Mm -hmm. right and it can mean something different to each person that is you know connecting to that poem or connecting to that ideal and so I, I do agree. Um, for me, I kind of 
read it more as a all good things must come to an end mm. type line. Um, and I feel that, you know, by the end of this, they realize they can't remain forever unsullied or uh, free from the harsh realities of life. And so it's exactly what you're saying. I, I do think that that's when it happens. I think, you know, that's the turning point and they realize life is it's a never going to be the same again. And B, it, they're 16 and 14 or, or whatever their ages are. Like they're, this is an extremely pivotal moment for them in their, mm-hmm. in their lives. And, uh, and it's, it's powerful, but it does set them on a different path, of course, to engaging in a life that they want to live versus just doing something because it's what they've done. Um, the second part of that, I would say the next step is the cutting of the hair mm-hmm. because it's, it's shedding a symbol that you have latched onto and identified yourself with. Yeah. Great point. And I don't think that pony boy can embrace his self of his poet side, so to speak, uh, without doing that. And mm-hmm. he needs Johnny to, to usher him through that. Like Johnny is the catalyst that, that drives all of that change and in so many ways. Um, and it's, it, that's part of what's so tragic about it to me is it's almost like Johnny has to give his life in order to set pony boy up to be the person he can be. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And it's what spurs him to start writing that essay because Again, I'm, I'm going to refer back to the, the to the director's cut. There's a scene near the end of the movie where he's talking with the principal, with his teacher, and his teacher understands that you know he's dealt with this tragedy, and and you know Johnny's died, and 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 Dally's died, and so his teacher's like, listen, why don't you just give me a give me an essay, and you know we'll we'll tack that up as your final grade or whatever. And he says, well, what kind of essay? He said, well, just a personal experience. And again, that that plays right into the novel. But what we get is this picture where we realize why Pony Boy is writing this essay, what he's writing. He's not just writing a book. He's not just writing The Outsiders. I mean, he has a purpose. It's to tell a personal story. But I don't I think you're exactly right. He wouldn't have been able to put pen to paper literally and figuratively had Johnny not spurn him on with that letter that letter wouldn't have existed if Johnny hadn't passed away. Like I, I mean, I, I think had Johnny lived, I don't think that letter would have had nearly the amount of impact that it did. And what I loved about that letter was that it was so full of optimism and so full of, of hope that I think that that letter reminded him to stay gold in that he's saying, he wasn't just saying he wasn't saying don't lose your innocence because that was gone. I mean, the moment that they would he witnessed murder and had to hide out and do all those changes. I mean, he he was growing up. His innocence was gone. But it's the ideals, the things that he could hold on to because he had the power to do that. He has the power to look at the world differently than his brothers, look at the world differently than Cherry, look at the world differently than Johnny and and Dally, all those guys. Yes. And, and, and Johnny was empowering him to do that. And I think that's why that, that moment is so amazing because 
it's like he was giving him permission to do it, albeit right. through his death into that letter, but he was still giving and you know, sometimes we need to be given permission. That's kind of where I hit personally is I need to be given permission to do something. You know, I need to be released to, to be able to do this or that. And I thought it was beautiful. Yeah, I, I did too, man. It's, it's definitely one of my, my favorite moments. And I think it's the, it's the point of what the film is really built around, you know, that relationship leading up to that line to me is what this movie is. If, if I wanted to watch it again, it would be because I wanted to feel inspired about, mm-hmm. you know, latching on to those golden qualities that I have or that people have expressed that I have that I should I should embrace. Um, and so, yeah, it's great. And, you know, <laughs> just to point this out, I really like that this movie is like 90 minutes long. Um, not enough movies are short and to the point. And, I, and you were mentioning earlier about the director's cut. And I know we went back and forth and then eventually bailed on it because of the extra stuff you said really wasn't necessary. Uh, you can tell a good succinct full story in 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. And this is a good proof of that. And, and I, I wish more directors would not be afraid of a shorter length and runtime uh, yeah. versus bloating it with unnecessary extra relationships that may not get paid off. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, one thing you mentioned that I want to touch on was just the gone with the wind scene comparison. Holy moly. Did I have a like flashback moment when, <laughs> when they were quoting the poem, just everything about the comparison of these, these two stories gone with the wind and the outsiders, I think is really neat. Of course they put gone with the wind, the book into the movie. Sure. As yeah. a, and I think that that was, or in, and she's probably put it into the book as well. It's, it's probably intentional, but it's, it's nice because you have gone with the wind, which is, you know, Yankees versus Confederates. Mm-hmm. You have the outsiders, which is the Soch versus the greasers. Both of these are essentially civil wars. One is a civil war in a country. One is a civil war in a city. These are two different groups. One is usually referenced as, you know, more the haves and one's the have nots. The wealthy and you know the less wealthy, or or the the more not necessarily less wealthy at this point, but when we're talking Yankees and Confederates, it would be more like uh, more refined <laughs> versus traditional. And then, much like Gone with the Wind, you also have these cross faction relationships uh, in Cherry and Randy. These kind of characters that are on one side, but sympathetic to the other side, and and see that there can be a path to coming together. One of my favorite moments in the movie is in a, there's a a scene at the diner where pony boy gets into the car with Randy and and Randy is just some random soch that is only there like once or twice in the movie. He doesn't, you know, you don't really see him any much other than this. And Randy says to him, when this is over, greasers will still be greasers and Soch will still be Soch. And then he says something to Pony Boy when he's leaving. He, I for, gosh, I wish I'd written it down. I forget what he calls him. He says, see you, see you later, Grease. Yeah, he says, see you later, Grease. And he says, hey. And he, and he rephrases, he says, kid, instead. And I just thought that was such a cool, cool moment because to me that's like a, a planting of a seed, Right. Mm-hmm. It's one little small step because th- th- these two groups are never going to come together 
magically on one night. They're not going to suddenly decide that they're best friends and get along. But that kind of act, that one moment, the, the couple of lines of Cherry sticking up for them, like those are the things that start to bring people together. So anyway, so those characters to me are reminiscent of characters in Gone with the Wind. And then the cinematography, I, I don't, I can't be an accident. I mean, the way that that scene where he's quoting the poem is shot, it is exactly like Scarlett O'Hara and the famous iconic as God is my witness scene from, mm-hmm. um, Gone with the Wind. So I, I really thought the, the comparisons were cool and, and, and a neat little added touch that weren't, they weren't overpowering to where it distracted me. Uh, and it was, it made sense. Yeah. A good movie doesn't have to be heavy handed to make its point. And I'm glad that we're covering this movie, particularly this week in our nation's history, uh, with a lot of what's happening with our, our president's comments and how it's affecting the NFL and the, the kneeling of the, with the national anthem all this stuff is swirling in my head and thinking about this movie and about this story and how, yeah, I definitely will admit that it's dated in, in its stories, but it's not in its ideals that there is still relevance of what's being portrayed in it. I mean, there's a clear misunderstanding between these various groups of people. And because of that misunderstanding, misunderstanding, there's this incredible amount of ignorant hatred and fear. And, it just reminds me of the hope that staying gold means constantly looking at those around me who are different than me and looking at them as equal and valuable. And we get glimpses of that in this movie. We get that relationship with cherry and pony boy, not that romantic relationship, but we get that you aren't just a grease and you aren't just a soch that you're a girl and I'm a guy. Uh, and, and we are, a couple of kids just trying to figure out how to live this life. I think what's most impressive to me is that Essie Hinton as an author who, by the way, makes a cameo herself. Uh, she's the nurse that, 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 uh, that, that Dally's given a hard time to in the hospital. No way. Really? Yeah, that's her. She did gets you... really frustrated and she walks away. <laughs> did, that's awesome. Did you know that Sophia Coppola is in this too? I, I read that. I don't know where she is, though. She is, when they're at the car at the Dairy Queen parking lot, um, <laughs> there's a little girl that comes up to yeah. them, and she asks for some change, and that's <laughs> that's her. Mister, you got a dollar? You got a yes, dime? Yes, exactly. Dime? <laughs> that's our now, you, kid. our now amazingly talented and famous director, Sofia Coppola, um, in her father's movie. Was looking for a dime. Yes, and now she's, and now she's found more than one in her. She's in got plenty career. of dimes now. She's yeah. got plenty of dimes. Exactly. Sorry to derail you, though. No, that's okay. But I just, I've become more impressed with Hinton as an author because she was writing this not to be some great author, but she was writing what she knew. That's the big thing. Something that I'm trying to latch onto as a aspiring writer is to write what I know. And so the first question I ask myself is, well, what do I know? (laughs) What are the things that I can write about? Well, she knew what it was like to be a teenager and she wanted to write about moments of teenageness and not just teen angst, but what it meant to grow up in the fifties with gangs and rumbles and, and, and smoking and all these things that were at the time of this writing at the time of this book were very edgy things. I mean, we can look back on, 
on we can look back on the outsiders and go hey yeah the, ooh, they're smoking ooh, crazy you know whatever but at the time these were very edgy things and he wasn't she wasn't just trying to be edgy for the sake of being edgy she was just trying to tell an honest story about what it was like to be a teenager and i really i'd like to believe that she captured that i didn't grow up in the 50s so i don't know but it's something i think i want to ask my dad he grew up in the 60s and i want to say hey you've read the outsiders or if you haven't read you know read the outsiders and tell me is is she capturing that and i think that's incredibly bold the moment that you mentioned earlier with with johnny and pony boy at the at the fountain after johnny kills the soch is a very innocent thing it's a very teenage thing it's like oh my gosh you you're, you you mentioned earlier that's what you and i would do if we were teenagers we'd just be freaking out oh my gosh what did i do mm-hmm. and we don't get that kind of honesty when it comes to uh you know a lot of your teenage films either if it's a teenage film uh, a movie centered around teenagers it's usually amplifying goofiness or amplifying crudeness or whatever which you know have their place in cinema in some ways this is almost like the start of the why young adult fiction type of stories i would say unintentionally Uh, no obviously yeah obviously no one starts a thing usually knowing they're starting a thing, but right. in the sense that it is trying to tell a story about young adults from a young adult perspective. Exactly. And I think that's where she's pretty much succeeding because I think a lot of books that, that we have are written by authors that are written about kids for adults to read. Um, and, and, and that's cool. That's, that's totally fine. I think Lord of the Flies was, was one of the books that came out around this, you know, the same time. And, uh, Catcher in the Rye, which is one of my favorite books. Uh, I'd love to see it become a film. <laughs> I don't, or maybe it has, and I just haven't seen it yet. But these these types of capturing of teenage ideals and teenage frustrations and teenage struggles, it's, it's tough to do as an adult. You mentioned earlier about your reviews and how the uniqueness about your reviews, which, by the way, I love. I love your format. It's about going into a film with expectations and how you cannot write about a movie that you've already seen because you missed that moment. You missed those expectations. You missed that initial, what am I expecting? And writing as an adult, I think we miss that if we're trying to write about kids. It's not to say that we can't, but I think that there's something really unique about being able to write characters and tell their stories as a teenager because there's something raw, there's something original, there's something very unique to that. And that may be where the disconnect is for me as a viewer of this movie, not just the novel type flow, but because of the fact that it's coming from a teenager. You know, this is a teenager screenplay, essentially. I mean, it was written by some. So I I can't I can't criticize that necessarily. Um, And so lots of admiration, you know, lots of lots of admiration towards um, towards her as an author. Um, but anyway, moving on. Um, to answer your question, there is not a Catcher in the Rye movie. There has always okay. been. Uh, it's it's been long lauded as something people want, but it just has never happened. There's actually a movie that came out this year though called Rebel in the Rye, that is about J.D. Salinger and how he lived this very reclusive lifestyle after the novel was released. So it's more of a biopic, but might be something you're interested in checking out once it. His Rebel streaming Rebel, Rebel in the Rye. I think our okay. our buddy Don Shanahan at uh, Every Movie Has a Lesson and our our contributor as well here uh, has a review of it. He saw it earlier this year. If you're curious mm. about it, but okay. yeah, Rebel in the Rye. I'll check that out. 
one thing I want to, one question I want to ask before we move into our connecting points that kind of, you know, stirred me this time around is the question of who are the outsiders? I think there's a lot of ambiguity or to, maybe to you, it's completely like, like clear. But to me, when I think about the outsiders, I don't think it's just the greasers. I mean, did you did you see a little bit of ambiguity in terms of if you were to define who the outsiders were? Do you do you think it's more than just one group? Do you think it's meant to be more, you know, universal? Oh, I think that could be a very artsy way of trying to read into it. Um, okay. No, I think I I do. It was very felt very blatant to me as far as to think about it in terms of the greasers or the outsiders. Okay, I would add. That within the greasers, I feel that Pony Boy and Johnny, to a large extent, become the outsiders as well within okay. context of even the greasers because they okay. are unique yeah. within that group. But that's mm-hmm. about as far as I would go. Okay. Well, I'm going to challenge that with my artsy response and i'm going to use my connecting point to do so okay oh so, so, wow so you me. what a segue what a segue so it wasn't intentionally be a segue i was just you set me up and i'm about to hit the grand you know i'm about to hit the the slam here i'm All doing right, a Patrick, little tennis thing give us the connecting point <laughs> well you mentioned it earlier it's the moment at the at the diner and pony boy and two bit are hanging out with a couple other random greasers and randy rolls up in his tough Mustang or something and they run into him and actually pony boy's about to go into the, uh, to the, to the soda shop and two says, Hey, wait, hold on. Let, let's see what, what they want. So Randy comes out and he says, Hey, pony boy, I want to talk to you. And the conversation they have just amplifies the idea that the story is trying to articulate looking beyond who a person is based on where they, they come from. And so here's, here's where I'm going to get my artsy answer. Randy says that he, quote, would have let those kids burn to death. So what I'm thinking is, here's a Soch that isn't acting like, well, of course, I don't know what a Soch is supposed to be. To me, I think if you're going to stereotype a Soch, it's going to be someone who's clean cut, who's the nice guy, who's honest, of course, <laughs> you know, Based on um, Bob, the guy that was actually killed, obviously, Sosas are not necessarily like the clean-cut All-Americans. But he goes, I just don't know anything, I guess. I just never thought a greaser would pull something like that. And Ponyboy responds, a greaser didn't have nothing to do with it. So that goes to your point, that even within this greaser family, Ponyboy is, and Johnny are outsiders, and so the whole conversation is fascinating because it reveals that that even Randy, one of the, quote, lucky ones with all the perks, as he says, doesn't like how things are. The way he says that, he says, look, I don't like this. I don't want to be this, but I'm just kind of stuck. And this conversation tells me that social status doesn't equal happiness or satisfaction and that even the socials are pressured to live up to their persona. And they don't like it. At least this guy doesn't. The frustration that that must feel just, I imagine it feels so overwhelming to both these guys. And that last line of the scene is with um, with Ponyboy and Tubit. And I love how he defends Randy here. Because Tubit says, 
what did the what did King Social want? And he says, he ain't a social, just a guy who wanted to talk. Yeah. And so I think in a lot of ways, we get the story of Ponyboy and Johnny, and we see their growth. We see them sort of becoming separate from uh, from the greaser mentality that they are. But I'd like to believe, I would really love to believe that Randy is on the other side of the tracks, literally and metaphorically, struggling with the same thing, trying to be trying to figure out who he really is within the world of the socias. Mm -hmm. I think Cherry's the same way. I think she wants to be different. I don't necessarily think she has enough of a story arc to justify that she's probably doing that. But that conversation in the car tells me that Randy at least is wanting to make that effort. Um, I think he feels helpless, but I'm, I'm going to hope that, that, uh, that he's pushing forward somewhere in the universe of the outsiders that, He's becoming an outsider even within his his faction of people. That's awesome, man. I I gotta say, I gotta admit, I I guess I kind of read it that way without thinking about it because the scene I told you the scene in that car there with Randy was was very important that I felt and, and it, I was something very noteworthy and that's it's starting the that down that road. So mm-hmm. I, when you explain it brilliantly, so so applause because that was. That was wonderful. And thank you. No, over there. <laughs> well, I, I just didn't want it to be too loud on the podcast, but it, I'm, <laughs> there we go. That's, that's my real applause for Patrick. No, seriously. Thank you for that um, insight because I think that that is wonderful. And the next time I watch it, I'm going to keep that in mind. And even if I only am getting those few brief scenes and brief moments of those characters, I'm going to really hyper-focus in on that and uh, try and see it through their eyes the next time. So I think that's, I think that's wonderful. Well, tell me about yours. What is your connecting point? Well, mine's much less uh, new and new and interesting, I guess, and, and pretty straightforward. (laughs) Um, No, mine is, Hey, a story can be great at 90 minutes. You can tell a connecting point that doesn't have to be incredibly like (laughs) life changing. My favorite connecting or my connecting point is the moment when she throws soda in his face. No. Um, yes. Okay. I love that too. <laughs> so there's two scenes that, that tie together that, that really did a number on me and were the moments that I got brought to tears, frankly, if I'm being honest. So it starts with the scene where Pony and Johnny are at the hospital and Johnny is telling Pony Boy that he no longer wants to die. Because 16 years is not enough life to have. There is a genius way in the, again, in the framing of this scene. And this is, this is Coppola's talent at work. But what we see is we see Johnny's face and he's laying down, right? He's in his stretcher. We can see the burns on his shoulders and um, on his chest that, that he's, he's taken on. And he's, he's describing to Pony Boy his injuries and that he can't walk again as part of this as well. And the way the camera is faced, then in the top left of the, the screen, we see Pony Boy looking down into the camera as well, but in a way that is very, very purposefully not directly looking at Johnny. Their eyes are not meeting. <laughs> and this is, this is part of what brought me to tears, is... They're both going through this, and, and, and Pony Boy knows that what he's saying is true. He's, his friend is, is crying out, like, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. They both know he's probably going to die. Um, and yet, again, they're having a hard time, like, they can't look at each other. 
and and I don't think it's out of it's not in a negative way, but it's in a like I can't handle it kind of way. And the impact of this scene to me becomes even more powerful later when it gets connected back to Johnny's letter that comes to Pony Boy. I'm going to read the letter because I think that his letter to me is just the epitome of this movie. And and most of the times the climax of the movie is not where I come to my connecting point. But in this case, it was. In that letter, he says, I asked the nurse to give you this book, Gone with the Wind, so you can finish it. It's worth saving those kids. Their lives are worth more than mine. They have more to live for. Tell Dally it's worth it. I'm going to miss you guys. I've been thinking about it, that poem, that guy that wrote it. He meant your gold when you're a kid, like green. When you're a kid, everything's new. Dawn. Like the way that you dig sunsets, pony. That's gold. Keep it that way. It's a good way to be. I want you to ask Dally to look at a sunset. I don't think he has ever seen one. There's still a lot of good in this world. Tell Dally I don't think he knows. And it's hard to not get emotional even just reading it because of, mm-hmm. of everything that is connecting in this moment, right? Right. Because it's not it's not just Pony Boy and Johnny. There's there's so much. So the respect that um, Johnny's words uh, and understanding here are that he's expressing sadness because he's dying too soon, but he's trying to then again much as before he's paying that forward he's thinking about other people he wants johnny or he wants pony boy to go on and stay gold and we've we've discussed that but he also wants dally to be differently live differently he wants dally to not continue down the path that he's been going and so it makes the tragedy of dally's death so much bigger for me and i think for most of us because that very death is stemming from his emotional loss of control over Johnny's death. It's, it's this terrible connected cycle and it feels so realistic. And the fact that Dally never gets to see that sunset because he dies that night Mm -hmm. is so, so sad. Um, And I think when Johnny tells him in that letter, tell them it, it was worth it saving their lives was what needed to happen. Like the, the kids' lives were more important than mine to have a, a child himself say that about younger children shows us just a maturity so far beyond his age. Um, and I just, I was connecting with this scene all over the place in a million different ways. Um, and I was emotional wreck during it. And, um, I think that, those relate those three relationships as we talked about in the beginning all wrap up and kind of tie in with this and it's what makes this movie special and what makes this movie considered a classic to me love it absolutely love that connecting point anytime you can throw johnny's letter into anything like poignant yes you do that because it's awesome and it's a great way to to end the movie in that it gives both sadness and hope at the same time. It's just this great transition piece. And it makes me just want to tell everybody to stay gold because it's inspiring. It does. So, now, now when I hear it, I'm going to really react differently to it. Yeah. So, and, and Jeremy, if you're listening, you can call me pointy boy, man. I don't mind it. 
So as long as you say to stay gold first, because that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> in the meantime, if anybody else wants to call me, uh, at least encouraging things, you know, don't call me. Well, anyway, you can call me whatever because I'm on social media, and you know, you can have no filter. And you can find me at the big three. I'm at uh, Facebook, in, uh, Instagram, and Twitter at Shoeless Patch, S H O E L E S S P A T C H. Um, you can also visit my website, thisispatch.com. I have started to push out some reviews. It's not really bonus content for the show. It's really more of my uh, theological thoughts on some of the films that we've been covering. If you guys want to check that out, there is a link under my writing section called Faith in Film. So if you're interested in reading some of that, love to uh, get your feedback and uh, get you over there. And um, as you mentioned, we are going to be covering Watchmen this week. As our donor pick, thank you donors for picking that. I actually have not seen this yet, so this will be a, a first time for me. So I'm looking forward to checking that out. And we are going to be having a special guest. Can we go ahead and reveal our special guest at this yeah, time? Yeah, why not? Okay. It'll be that guy named John from the About to Review podcast. We asked him if he'd want to be on, and he, I think he jumped through the social media uh universe to give us a big hug i think that was kind of how you described it or something but we're excited to have him on and uh, look for that episode to drop later this week awesome i'm i'm really excited about that episode in general the movie having john on i think it's going to be a ton of fun and oh i'm just i'm so glad that they picked that movie it's it's going to be a blast and we do have some new patreon donors uh, as well and, and we will be sure and recognize them uh, on that episode. That'll be a good good place to do that. As for me, if you'd like to continue the conversation, I am active as always on social media at Aaron L. White. That's A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and the like. You can also find me tweeting from the Feel and Film Twitter account. Um, Facebook group, Facebook group, Facebook group. We preach it. We talk about it. We screen, go there every single week, but there's a reason it's growing. It's awesome. People come there and love to talk movies all day long, every day. You can find it links to it in the show notes, links to it on the website. You can find it by the search function on Facebook, but we want you to come be a part of that Facebook group. If at all possible next week, in addition to Watchmen, we will be kicking off a new run of films that I personally am so excited for Patrick. Uh, we are, we've just had a good run here lately with doing the books to movies month. And then these next three films are kind of in a way all in my top 10 of all time. We're going to be covering Blade Runner, which is in my top 10. Then we're going to be covering Blade Runner 2049, which isn't technically in my top 10, but you know, it's connected to one of my top 10. And then we're going to be covering The Princess Bride in honor of its 30th anniversary, which I think might end up just being a quote along podcast so we'll see how that turns out <laughs> much like tombstone <laughs> yeah it's i don't know what's gonna what's gonna occur but it's going to be awesome so yeah lots of awesome stuff coming in the next few weeks and yeah i'm excited to get there man it's been fun well good i am excited too and again blade runner is another movie i haven't seen so we're getting a lot of uh, first time stuff for me so i'm excited about checking these out and uh, hopefully i will love them so that we can remain friends and continue this podcast together. That would be uh, good. Until, well, you know you've got me for Princess Bride because I love that movie. So um, until then, I want to say thanks to our patrons, thanks to our listeners. All of you guys are just fantastic, and we are so glad that you stay engaged with us. 
through listening, through talking through the Facebook group, through tweeting us and adding us here and there. But we got to go. But until next time, stay positive. And keep feeling film. Nerd. Hi, my name's Aaron White. I'm just going to be a, a literary guy tonight. <laughs> <laughs>